Welcome to the FASD Family Life Podcast. This is the 104th episode of the show for caregivers by a caregiver. I am Robbie Seal, and I am an FASD educator, advocate, and mom of five incredible people, including three teens diagnosed with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And if my 30 years of parenting have taught me anything, it's that the struggle is real and so is success. Now, listen, I just wanted to let you know that this podcast is supported solely by listeners like you. I encourage you to check the link in the show notes to click support the show and you can be a monthly sponsor or give a one-time gift. Well, here we are, my friends, episode 11 of season four, which I am calling my world tour. This season, I am speaking with researchers, service providers, and individuals with FASD around the world. Hey, did you catch my last episode with Concordia University Associate Professor, Dr. Jared Brown? Last week, we were talking about the fascinating topic of microbiota gut-brain axis. I was surprised to learn about the role that gut health and microbiota play in inflammation, overall health, and behaviors. Be sure to have your favorite pen and notebook on hand for this informative episode with Dr. Brown. Be a great time to remind you to click the subscribe button so you never miss another episode. And while you're there, leave a comment and rate the show because that helps other people find the podcast too. This week, I'm in Canada to tell you about a new research project examining prenatal alcohol and neuroimmunity. I am thrilled to share the mic with Brock University Assistant Professor Dr. Charlize Renicki and Dr. Tamara Bodner, Research Associate from the University of British Columbia. Welcome to the FASD Family Life Podcast. I'm Robbie. I'm the host of the show. I'm also a parent of five kids four of whom are prenatally exposed to alcohol. So I am fascinated by the research that you were uh, diving into about the myriad of health-related conditions, including mental health and immune system dysfunction over the life course. And as I understand it, in your current project, you're investigating whether altered gut microbia composition, which is known to increase inflammation, underlies the increased susceptibility of mental health problems for this population? Sounds like a million-dollar question. We know that individuals with FASD, over the course of the lifespan, 90% are going to struggle with mental health problems. It's fascinating for me. I don't, I don't think gut when I think mental health. Help us understand. Tell us about your study. Great. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for having us. Um, yeah. So we're really interested. I think some of the, the basic work that turned into the current study was around um, looking at inflammation in both animal models and kids with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And we saw a a higher rate of inflammatory proteins um, in individuals that were alcohol exposed. But one of the big questions we have is where is that inflammation coming from? Higher levels of inflammation over the life course impact behavior, impact mental health, impact kind of the whole organ systems and are, can be detrimental over the life course. But one of the key problems is understanding where, where that inflammation is actually coming from. And in other conditions like autism, um, there's been a lot of work looking at gut brain immune axis, looking at the microbiome, those bacteria that live in your gut. But this is really something that hasn't been explored at all in FASD. And there's a lot of work in these other um, neurodevelopmental disorders to show that 
when you have an unhealthy gut, what's called like a leaky gut, meaning bacteria can pass from the inside of the gut into, into the bloodstream, into the body, um, you get an inflammatory response. And this you know, results in inflammation in the body, this signal gets transmitted to the brain, impacts behavior, that type of thing. And even just having the the improper balance of bacteria within your gut. So more path, what are called pathogenic bacteria, more bad bacteria in your gut can can contribute to the gut being leaky. Um, that can cause inflammation as well. So that was kind of our um, our, our hypothesis that maybe some of this inflammation that we're seeing in FASD is coming from problems with the gut and the bacteria within the gut. I am fascinated. You know, like I said, 30 years experience raising kids. I have never heard of leaky gut and FASD in the same sentence. I have heard it in autism. And t- to be honest with you, I'm so busy chasing down everything related to FASD. I haven't looked into that. So oftentimes, this demographic, individuals with FASD are overlooked in research. So as a representative of at least four and from this podcast, many more, thank you so much for diving into this. We as moms, dads, service providers are going to be fascinated to hear more about your research. I think something we've kind of figured out is that in research in particular, there's often this sort of one system view, you know, researchers will look at the cardiovascular system in response to prenatal alcohol exposure or the lots of research on the brain. But I think one of our big focuses is to span across systems. So, you know, we talk about the gut brain immune system, we're looking at three big systems and a lot of crosstalk between them, because I think to really better understand FASD, it's going to take a sort of zoomed out approach, multi-system to kind of get at the crux of the issues. And I, I think that uh, looking at the immune system, it is put us in the right spot because the immune system is one of those systems that communicates with basically everything that's in the body, it communicates with your cardiovascular system, with respiratory system, communicates with the brain. It is very important about how the brain functions. We, in general, think about the immune system just when we're sick, but the immune system in a daily basis is important for regular uh, functions that we have. So looking at the immune system, and it is important focus because it allows us to have, bridge those gaps with every single other system that perhaps is not the focus of our own research at the moment. Before we dive any deeper, I need you to introduce yourself to all my listeners. So Charlize, go ahead, please. Hi, I'm Charlize Reinecke. I am an assistant professor at Brock University. I am, by training, uh, a a researcher that uses animal models. And more recently, I have bridged the gap and moving to a more translational approach in which we're actually investigating uh, or trying to understand the findings that we had uh, looking in your animal models into actually the, uh, the subjects of our goal uh, st- studies that is individuals with FASD. And so you're at Brock University, and that is where again? Uh, Brock University is uh, St. Catharines, Ontario. So Wonderful. it's like an hour and a half from Toronto. And if you live in Canada, Toronto is the center of the universe, and he's an hour and a half from there. And I'm in yes. because I'm in Alberta. So we have a, there's a thing, you know. Anyway, <laughs> lovely to have you here. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Tamara, would you introduce yourself, please? Awesome. I'm Tamara Bodner. Um, I have a PhD in neuroscience, and I'm currently a research associate at the University of British Columbia. 
Um, and my research, similar to Charlize, has focused on preclinical sort of animal models of prenatal alcohol exposure. Um, and now I'm more focused on human studies. So looking at adults, children and adults with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Um, and my my PhD was basically to understand um, the inflammation that occurs with prenatal alcohol exposure across development, across many different systems. Um, and now I'm, I'm mainly focused on the link between the gut, brain and immune system um, in the context of prenatal alcohol exposure. I'm so happy that you're here. You know, as I mentioned to you earlier, Dr. Jared Brown is frequently a guest on our show and he's uh, he's an associate professor. He's been talking a lot with me and my audience about the gut brain health connection. And it's really interesting. We've just started a series uh, in the season four about threats to emotional well-being. So this is perfectly following that. Prior to that, I had a fascinating conversation with adults who have FESD. They were the authors of the study. I'm sure you're familiar with the lay of the land health survey that brought to light the 425 comorbidities and so much inflammation there and immune disorders there. What perfect timing. So dive in, take me into this research, take me into what we're finding. Yeah. So the research is still in its infancy, I would say. So we're still kind of looking at our hypotheses and trying to see what's going on. Um, but we've done some preclinical work, so meaning using animal models, and we have the first paper to look at the microbiome following prenatal alpha exposure in a in a rodent model. Um, and we're working on the second one now. And basically, what we're seeing is um, what's called gut dysbiosis, so an improper balance of the good and bad bacteria in the gut in response to prenatal alpha exposure. Again, in this animal model, so not the same necessarily as humans, but does suggest, you know, we might be seeing the same thing. So we're seeing, for example, increases in some of these pathogenic bad bacteria that actually impair the integrity of the gut itself, meaning that it's probably more leaky, allowing bacteria to come in. We're seeing other, you know, other bacteria that are beneficial bacteria that are decreased following prenatal alcohol exposure. So really suggesting that the, the gut bacteria that are that are in there aren't necessarily the healthiest. You know, this has been shown, like I said, in other disorders like autism models and things like that, but never been looked at in prenatal alpha exposure or FASD. So now we're doing a couple studies um, to, to basically assess this in adults and children with FASD. So we have one project where we're working with a bunch of amazing collaborators, Dr. Catherine LaBelle at the University of Calgary, we're working with Dr. Natasha Reed um, in Australia and uh, Caitlin McLaughlin in Ontario at Guelph to basically recruit kids with FASD and look at some of these similar measures. So looking at um, the gut microbiome, so the bacteria in the gut, um, and link that with uh, behavior as well and mental health um, challenges in kids. But I think something that's really important and a key part of our research is risk resilience. We know that not every kid with FASD presents the same way. Kids have different challenges, different strengths. And so a key component of our studies, both in kids and adults, is to really look at, you know, risk resilience when it comes to mental health and then link that back to gut health to try to say maybe there are some kids that, you know, the bacteria within their gut are actually really healthy, really, you know, flourishing. And then that's maybe not linked to some of these behavioral and mental health challenges to kind of understand differences as well. 
I imagine in your research, particularly your animal model, you're you're looking at a control group that has no prenatal exposure, and then you have your other subject that your variable group. What so what have you learned so far about the different presentation of gut health within those two? Well, I think one of the that sort of speaks to the strength of animal models in general is that we have such tight control. So unlike humans, like you and I probably eat very different diets just naturally. You know, we all have our likes and dislikes. Life history has been different. So it's going to, there's going to be a lot of variability there. But the amazing thing about the animal model is that our, our animals are siblings of each other. And, you know, we have such tight control over what they eat. So they, our alcohol exposed animals obviously consume alcohol during pregnancy, but then through by a mom, but then postnatally after birth, their diet is exactly the same. The humidity in the room, all of their exposures, everything is exactly the same. So that's kind of one of the huge advantages there. And, and really what we're seeing is that even with all that tight control, the bacteria looks super different between those two groups. So between the control animals and the alcohol exposed animals, again, we're still, we're, we're still sort of teasing it apart and we can't necessarily say we have some evidence that the gut is leakier because we can measure um, bacteria in the bloodstream and we're seeing higher levels of bacteria in the bloodstream suggesting that the gut is leaky. But Charlize has a project now that's really kind of getting at the integrity of the gut in a much more detailed way that'll be able to kind of make the case for whether or not that's actually occurring. What we're going to do is uh, go and actually look at the, the proteins in the, the in the gut that are responsible for making our gut uh, cells very tight together. So perhaps somewhat one of some of those proteins that are called tight junctions, they are not necessarily holding our gut cells tightly together and some more bacteria might be entering the organism. So when we start this, we have basically two hypotheses. One was that alcohol exposure during gestation was altering the gut microbiota. Or perhaps if the gut microbiota, the gut microbiota was not being changed, that was changing how this gut development happened and the gut was leaky regardless of what type of bacteria was inside. But what we're seeing, uh, our data that we have until this point is that perhaps both are happening. We have a change in the gut microbiota and we also have a gut that is more leaky. Some of those bacteria that are in the gut are actually entering more. So that is basically two levels of alterations that might contribute to the alterations in behavior that we might be seeing. Okay, interesting. That might be contributing to the behavior that we might be seeing. How? The change in behavior is related to the inflammation because there are tons of data out there, not in prenatal alcohol exposure, but in other models or just in typical developing animals that link how the inflammation that we have that might be resultant from the alteration in our gut microbiota can actually control the behavior. So uh, those inflammatory markers can actually enter the brain or uh, the information can enter the brain and induce some of those markers to be produced in the brain and alter how how our brain works. And that will lead to alterations in uh, behavior function. So there is plenty of data that talk about how Having a differential gut microbiota 
leads to some change in the immune function that is associated with depression. That link, that is something that is clear. Also, there are changes in our cognitive function. Tamara has a study that we are trying to finish up that is trying to make those links. How is this change in the gut microbiota of those animals actually are contributing to this change in cognitive function that those animals have? And I'm doing a study to look at how possible change in the gut microbiota, it is perhaps modulating some of the changes in emotional regulation that our animals have. Those are the preclinical studies that we have that support this exploration that we're doing in the humans. One of the biggest, biggest advantage of using the animals is that one, what Tamara just said, is that there's this huge control on all the variables but two, we have a direct access to the brain. We can actually go in and see how is this alteration in the immune function that perhaps is linked to the alteration in the gut microbiota actually resulting in alteration in how the brain function. So those are the things that we take advantage of when using this animal model. Okay, like I'm just nerding out here. Um so obviously with animal models, you control, you know, the alcohol, you control all their diet, all their environment. So you have their water, their food, every, every bit of their environment. Um, and then the degree to which they are exposed to alcohol and the timing and all that kind of a thing. And so you're able to study this. You're able to study how um, the microbiota and also the cell, maybe the cells of the gut not being as healthy and as uh, rigid or not rigid, but connected that would prevent leakage, how that results in inflammation, the signals that sends to the brain, and then the behaviors that result. Am I tracking? Did I, did yes. I, I got that? Yeah, I got that. Perfect. Wow. Okay. <laughs> when you're looking at the animals, you also have the opportunity to actually physically examine the brain. That's what we can't do in humans, but you get to actually physically examine the brain. What are you learning there? What are you seeing as differences there? Yeah. So again, lots of this work is still ongoing, but in one of the studies that's basically complete, um, we had animals that were exposed to alcohol or not. And then we tracked them over development, collected a lot of poop samples to look at the the bacteria within the the fecal sample. Yeah. Science Um, is so sexy. Hey. Right. I get to use the poop emoji all the time. It's so much fun. Yeah. Um, um, and then I, we looked at a behavioral cognitive task uh, called the Barnes maze. And it's, it's basically a task that looks at um, spatial learning and memory. There's lots of cool things you can do. You can start off with a basic rule and you can switch the rule and to see, to see sort of how flexible the animals can be when, when the, the game sort of changes. And we did this task over the course of a month and then again collected poop samples and then looked at looked at the brain and and peripheral, so the blood to look at inflammation. And what we're seeing is that the gut bacteria look different in the alcohol exposed animals all the way into adulthood. And that even that was a huge finding because when you think about it, you know, these animals were exposed during gestation and now they're adults. So it's been over 90 days. They've lived in the same environment, eaten the same food for the equivalent of a rat lifetime, and yet their bacteria and their gut still look very different. The alcohol was animals performed worse on that um, spatial learning and memory task. They did, you know, they did quite well on some of the basic learning of the task. They were able to learn it at essentially the same rate as a, as a control animal. But when, when the rule changed and sort of the game changed, they weren't able to to make that switch. So that's where we saw the impairment. 
And then when we looked in the brain, we're seeing higher levels of inflammation within the brain as well as within the body themselves. So, you know, sometimes it's tricky to make the direct link. There's more studies that would need to be done to say A plus B equals C, but we are sort of seeing a lot of those pieces that kind of match up with our overall hypotheses. Another change that is happening in the brain is that uh, there are some of the cells that are called microglia. There are some of the cells that produce those immune markers, and there are also a different numbers, different number of those cells in those animals are exposed to alcohol. So, it, kind of explaining where the inflammation is coming from. Fascinating. So, I have three children diagnosed with FASD. And we have, you know, other challenges uh, like anxiety and like behavioral challenges and all this along the way. We have eczema and we have allergies and food intolerances. And you're nodding your head going, yeah, uh-huh. And nobody has ever asked us about gut health. This is still a pretty new field. So it's, you know, always takes a while for that newer research to make its way into clinical practice. And like I said, since we don't even really know what a healthy set of gut bacteria look like, it's hard to fully implement that clinically. But I think, you know, it really does highlight that you have to look at multiple systems together. And just like there's a lot of research done on sleep and FASD. And as soon as you can, if you can find strategies to improve sleep, lots of other, there's lots of other benefits that come along, along with it. And again, we're not MDs, but you know, when we all know from personal experience, when you're eating healthy and you're exercising, there are downstream effects on just how you feel, right? So probably when there's lots of other health conditions going on, it's not a bad idea to consider diet, exercise, gut health, that type of thing, but it'll probably take a while before it's really implemented. Fair enough. I'm not throwing any shade on my physicians. You know, now that this research is growing, and I know this is an up and coming field, it's kind of like a no brainer, isn't it? I know the parents are going to be asking, so what do we need to do? What do we need to do? And you said earlier, hold on, we don't have that information just yet. And so I'm not going to ask you to go there. What I'm going to ask you is what does leaky gut mean? I think you alluded to it, but just break that down for us. What is a leaky gut? Sure. So a leaky gut is essentially when your gut is allowing things to go through that shouldn't go through essentially. So bacteria have coatings on them that when they enter into your body result in immune reactions. So we all know this, right? When you get, you know, a bacterial infection, you're going to start mounting an immune response, fever, your behavior changes, you exhibit what are called sickness behaviors, you don't want to go out, you just kind of want to crawl into a hole until you feel better, all of those things. So a leaky gut essentially means bacteria getting through the gut walls, the gut lumen and entering into the body and causing resulting in an immune um, reaction. And the causes of the leaky gut can be many. And Charlie's mentioned, you know, the two big ones, basically changes in gut development, meaning it's just naturally kind of leaky, but also the, the composition of the bacteria within the gut itself can result in a more leaky gut. So there's certain bacteria that um, if you have too many of them, will actually start to degrade the mucus layer of the gut and then make it more leaky. So there's many different pathways to kind of get to that leaky gut. The big key is that it results in inflammation in the body. It, it is, a, it is a, a tricky job for the gut because the gut cells have to allow a lot of things to pass through because that's how we absorb all the nutrients that we get from foods. But the gut also has to prevent some stuff that perhaps are going to be 
pathogenic or bad for us to enter. So like, it's a fine balance that the gut has to do to allow things to enter that we need to be able to survive, to mount the growth, uh, or uh, to prevent things to enter. So that fine balance uh, is that we're trying to look at. So like animals are exposed to alcohol, perhaps change that development in allowing more bigger things or bacteria to actually enter, in which, so meaning that the gut is not functioning properly. This is the fascinating research. We need more data. Tamara, you, you mentioned briefly there's a study. Tell us about the Canadian study. Who's eligible? What you're looking for? How do they participate? Awesome. Yeah. So we're currently running a study in Canada where um, we're looking at essentially all of these things we've just talked about. So we're looking at the composition of the bacteria within a, within fecal samples, and we're looking at mental health and physical health. So this study Anyone who has a diagnosis of FASD is eligible to participate. You have to currently live in Canada, um, be 19 years or older. And essentially because of COVID, we're doing the study mainly on the phone. So all of the questionnaires, conversations will, would all happen just via the phone. We would just require everyone to have a permanent address where we could send um, this. Essentially, it's this little kit that allows you to collect a fecal sample, a poop sample at home, it sounds worse than it is. Maybe it's a it, it allows the the sample to be collected really easily, and then you would just mail it back to us. Um, and I think you're able to post um, some of the details so that individuals with FASD could contest contact us directly. Absolutely, yes. You furnished me with a really nice poster here, and it says research participants needed. What we want to learn is how health issues faced by adults with FASD may differ from those adults without, and especially interested in whether alcohol impacts the developing gut and how that may lead to long-term health issues. Now, we know that there are a long list of long-term health issues that individuals with FASD uh, face, including a significantly higher rate of autoimmune disorders than typical population. So perhaps this is contributing to the why. So sometimes in some studies, we get to spit for science. This time, we get to poop for science. Your kit that goes out makes it easy to collect, and people don't have to be grossed out about that. And in fact, maybe they could even, you know, find some humor in this too, that they get to poop for science. We definitely had some participants, you know, just think it's hilarious that they get they get paid to poop for science, right? Oh, you get paid. Tell me about yeah. the, tell me about that. Yeah, so we definitely we definitely pay subjects for their participation in the studies. So both for completing the questionnaires and then for going through with collecting that poop sample and mailing it back to us. All so, right. What can a participant look forward to as their remuneration? Yeah, so they get a $25 gift card for each component of the study. $25. And if you complete it, it's another $25. Exactly. So $50 and you poop for science. So that's pretty awesome. And it's not going to be difficult and it's not going to take very much time. And what about the phone component? How much time does that take? Yeah, so the phone interview takes about an hour, I would say, a little bit less depending. We can also break it up if, you know, if it's easier to do it in two sessions, um, but no more than an hour. Okay. So, yeah, sometimes an hour is a long time for somebody to be on the phone. So you can break it up a little bit. They need an address that they can mail from and they need to have access to a phone for you to contact them. Exactly. For those people that are might maybe grossed out by it, we send a pair of gloves. You don't need to touch anything. 
the th- the amount is very small. It's everything very very easy to do. There is even we can share even a video on how you can do uh, the processing. So it is very, very we we try to make it as easy as possible uh, for anyone that's interested in, in participating. Yeah, I like the idea that there's a video too that shows you how because sometimes reading instructions and then you get grossed out and they're like, no, 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 no. But if there's a video and it shows how simple it is and there's gloves, nobody has to get gross and it's pretty simple. I mean, I think we all we all have this thing about poop, but I mean, if we can just get past that and and send this in, I mean, we could really be contributing some really important data to your study. So that's really cool. You're looking for participants in Canada. 19 years old or older, they can live anywhere in Canada. Charlie, you mentioned there is a study happening where researchers are looking to collect data about children who have FAS and their gut health. Yes, we're doing a similar study, but looking then at kids that or uh, that have a diagnosis of FASD. And that study is happening in Canada uh, in two locations. Uh, one is in Calgary uh, with uh, Catherine LaBelle. And uh, another one is in, at the University of Wealth with Caitlin McCoughlin. And we are also uh, doing the same study with some participants in Australia with Natasha Reed at the University of uh, Queensland. All those locations, uh, people can, uh, if they're interested, they can join in the study. Uh, we, we also have uh, information about how they can join in those studies. But those are, we're not doing a Canada-wide in that in, in the kids, because at the moment we want the kids to go in and do some of the tests. Okay. There isn't a Canada-wide study for the children. It's happening. Is it in Alberta? Is that what you were kind of suggesting? Is it at the U of Calgary? Yeah. So for Alberta kids. Okay. So we can put the link to that study here as well. Share that on socials. There's a study in Australia. And is that for Australian residents only? Yes, and I think mostly for people that live uh, around the University of Queensland. Oh, uh, closer to the University of Queensland. Okay, good. Yeah. Well, that's good information. We can have that information on the show too, because we do have listeners in Australia around that area, so they'll be happy to know that. Tamara, we were talking too about another study you were mentioning about uh, looking into FASD and aging. Let's let's learn a little bit about that as well, if we have some time. Yeah, so you kind of alluded to that um, in your as you were talking about it. So. The idea here is that, you know, we know increased level of inflammation is harmful to body systems. And our hypothesis is that over the life course, this increased sort of low level of inflammation could lead to accelerated aging. Um, and we know, obviously, from the, the lay of the land survey that, it, that adults with FASD have done, there's a lot of health problems that come about at an earlier age. We have some work in our in our animal model that shows that arthritis is more severe, prolonged, and we have some similar um, data from a clinical project with adult and adults with FASD. And so we know there's a lot of health problems. Um, but one of the key questions that remains is: Are these sort of health problems coming about due to what's called increased inflammatory burden. So higher amounts of inflammation. It's also called inflammaging. So meaning like this inflammation is driving aging. Um, and, and that's kind of something we're looking at currently to see whether there are markers of aging that appear earlier um, in adults with FASD. And also in, we're also looking at uh, animal models to be able to really get at um, brain, the brain itself. Has that been studied in other special populations? 
To some extent, it's definitely, you know, we definitely know there are populations that just don't age the same. There's those, you know, adults that live and live really healthily up until their 90s, 100, et cetera. And there's definitely data there to suggest that their inflammatory levels are much lower than individuals that are starting to to experience cognitive decline, dementia, those types of things. So there's definitely a decent amount of data that suggests that inflammation over the life course can drive accelerated aging, but it's still kind of, again, an up and coming field. I think like for us, the cool thing there is to use the animal model because uh, that type of experiment or study using just humans is hard because the idea is that we're going to be able, we want to be able to track them for a long period of time because a lot of those things that we're looking at uh, in individuals with FASC, we know that perhaps they face some challenge. So one thing is cognitive decline or cognitive problems. We know that some people with FASD have some cognitive problems. So looking at just a one-time time time point, we're not going to see this aging happening. So we need to track them in a longer time to see are their cognitive problems uh, becoming uh, worse as they get older. So this is very hard to do in humans. So we're going to use, take advantage of our animal model to actually track this in their life course. So we have a study going on now in which we are uh, having, having animals are exposed to alcohol. We're going to test their cognitive function with the same test that Tammy just explained. That is the Barnes maze uh, at six months, one year and a year and a half to see are those animals that show some cognitive deficits and in the earlier age, showing a, a age-related deficits earlier if they're exposed to alcohol. So I think here the, the beauty of the work that we do is that we can find the real problem that individuals with FSD are facing and go in in the lab and try to replicate and study more in depth what is happening there. So this is what we're trying to do. And I think uh, that will provide a lot of insights about uh, if that, if that is the case, what can we do? You know, what can we do to prevent this or to slow down this process? Um, then the next step is like, is there any possible treatment? You know, like that may slow down this process, and that that is informative not just for individuals with FSD, but to the whole population. Like. Is my uh, inf- levels of inflammation driving my aging faster? And if this, if, the, if that is the case, what can I do? And I think like, just to add, like a lot of the, this research has really been driven by individuals that, with FASD. We've been going to the FASD Vancouver conference since since it basically began to some extent, um, and really just listening to adults, listening to what their health concerns were, um, and what you know what they felt they needed, and so. Uh, for example, I, I had a study, uh, preclinical animal model study, um, looking at arthritis and, and presented there at that conference to show that animals that were exposed prenatally to alcohol had higher increased incidence and severity of arthritis and impaired sort of resolution of, of that inflammation. And the first questions I got were from adults with FASD saying, okay, so what about us? You know, does this happen in adults with FASD? I feel like I'm having some of these symptoms. My doctor's not taking me seriously. And it was so awful to have to tell them, like, 
I hate to tell you, but no one's ever looked at this in adults with FASD and they should. And, it, you know, our, our data suggests it's probably a problem, but I can't tell you for sure. And so as a result, um, we, we applied for funding and, and continued this work in adults with FASD. And now it's not published yet, but we're seeing higher rates of, of what we're calling preclinical symptoms of autoimmune conditions. Um, so definitely suggesting that there are there's a likelihood that arthritis may be onset maybe earlier and more severe. So, you know, that's something that's just super important to us. And similarly, when we talk about, you know, aging and all these other health concerns that keep coming back to that nothing about us without us kind of thing, like we really, really appreciate hearing from adults with FASD, hearing what their health concerns are and really trying to go between those two things, adults with FASD, and then back to the preclinical animal model to really understand what's happening. And then partnering with our adults with FASD, kids with FASD to try to to try to understand if the same thing is happening in individuals. Fascinating work. And really, our, the research does have to be driven by those with the lived experience. They are the experts. They are living in these bodies that have been impacted by this prenatal exposure. And we used to think, okay, it's brain. It's all brain. And now, you know, individuals have known for a long time and, and maybe caregivers have experienced, you know, anecdotally, like, no, there's more going on here. And then the study that led by the uh, adult leadership committee that, that brought forward this lay of the land and showed us 428 comorbidities. What are some of the autoimmune disorders that are more prevalent among individuals prenatally exposed to alcohol? That's a tricky thing to answer directly. Um, so one of the challenges we experienced in the study is that a lot of our adults with FASD, so we, we had plans to basically look at medical records to directly ascertain, okay, in this adult population, which specific conditions have been diagnosed at a higher rate. The challenge was a lot of adults with FASD stopped going to doctors for various reasons, negative interaction with the health system, you know, not being taken seriously about their health concerns. We have a big indigenous population who just didn't always feel safe with their interactions with the medical system. And so, you know, using those medical diagnoses is not really reasonable data because there's a lot of missing uh, missing data. And so we asked um, our adults with FASD to just report what conditions they've been diagnosed with, but we don't really see much there. So what we did instead is we we put together this, um, basically it's a questionnaire that looks at symptoms of autoimmune conditions. So they're kind of general general symptoms that individuals can start experiencing as like early signs of a broad range of auto, autoimmune conditions, things like being dizzy, having brain fog, skin that bruises easily, pain in your joints, that type of thing. We kind of summed all that, all those data together, and we see a, a higher um, set of these symptoms in adults with FASD. So it's not necessarily proving that, okay, adults with FASD have a higher rate of um, arthritis, for example, but it's suggesting that this is something either preclinically starting to arise or um, that there's some underlying conditions that maybe have yet to be diagnosed in these individuals. And the other thing is there, our adult population is not especially old. So the average age is sort of mid thirties. And yet we're seeing, um, higher rates of, of conditions or, or symptoms, um, that wouldn't normally be occurring until much later. So I, there's still more work to be done and you have to figure out the best way you know, to get around the fact that there's less interactions with the medical system and diagnoses. But I think that's one of one of our goals overall in some of this work is to just put the research out there, 
get information out there to, to, you know, maybe it's medical school, medical training, doctors, so that instead of hearing back from these adults with FASD that they weren't taken seriously when they went to the doctor, they were told, you know, FASD is a childhood disorder. There's no way you could have arthritis, like see you later, that maybe there's more of a, okay, let's dive into this. Um, you know, let's do some of these tests. Let's talk about it. You know, it, the, the condition itself may look different, may present differently. Like arthritis, for example, may present differently in adult with FASD, but it's something that's worth looking at um, in, in more depth. Fascinating. I mean, I know some of the autoimmune disorders that came up were the rheumatoid arthritis, um, uh, chronic uh, fibromyalgia, sarcoidosis, asthma, eczema. I'm not an expert, but I just remember some of those. I remember the um, extraordinarily high rate of what was presenting as or or is um, early onset dementia, uh, astronomically high rate of early onset dementia as opposed to the general population. And so if we can get to looking at this as a whole body disorder, that's what we're coming back to is FASD is not just a brain disorder, certainly not a childhood condition, but a whole body disorder that spans a lifetime. And so the more we can understand how that prenatal exposure has actually impacted the body, we always think of the brain, but of course, the entire fetus is developing across that nine month period and alcohol introduced at any time in there is going to compromise development. It's a very important topic, and I think we are starting to explore those topics now, and I think there's a lot to learn, and I think that that's our goal, to see what else is out there and see how can we use the information to help those individuals. Brilliant. Thank you so much. I've learned so much from you, and I'd be really uh, keen to follow up with you as we get more data and maybe as you've published. Let's talk about it again. Let's talk about, okay, what did we learn? What are the questions it brings up? What else are we going to pursue? Um, And of course, we didn't go into what do we do about this because that's not your area of expertise. So if parents are wondering, what do you do about this? Um, I guess what you do is go talk to your primary care physician. If you're concerned that perhaps you're a child, you're an adult, you yourself have leaky gut. If you're a person who has FASD and you're listening, go talk, talk to your primary care physician. Uh, if you're not sure how, send them this podcast. I mean, I've done that recently with my pediatrician. I had a really good, uh, when I did that lay of the land survey in the adults with FASD and they listed up all their diagnoses, I'm like, I sent it off to our psychiatrist. I sent it off to our uh, pediatrician. Whether they listen to it or not, I don't know, but maybe they will. And and so this is some information that we're having that science is looking into this. But maybe that helps us say, could we, doctor, could we have a conversation? That's all I'm asking is, could we have a conversation? Could we explore the connection between gut health, brain health, emotional health, physical well-being? Could we just explore that together? And I think if we come with a teamwork attitude, hopefully we'll, we will be able to collaborate with our doctors and get better results. What's the goal? It's to have better outcomes for individuals of FASD, right? That's the goal. Always our goal is thinking about those individuals that are out there that are have the lived experience with uh, the disorder. Uh, so our goal is always to try to answer questions that are guided by them to help in whatever they need to get help. And increase that health span. So the idea that individuals with FASD can live really healthy lives with the proper supports, treatment, that type of thing. But we really have to understand what's going on, what's driving the various health problems to better then improve 
health. Well, thank you very much for taking up the mantle of research, listening to those who have the lived experience and doing your best to try to answer those questions. And I know as one question, you begin to dive in, it leads to more and more questions. And that's wonderful. It's just the richness of of learning. So I appreciate you being here with me today. Thank you. And we'll speak again. For sure. Thank you for having us. I'm so encouraged to learn about these studies in Canada and in Australia that are looking to understand the impact of prenatal alcohol exposure on immune function and on microorganisms in the digestive tract and in the microbiota and what that means for inflammation and overall well-being and health for individuals who have been prenatally exposed to alcohol. If you want to know more about these studies or you'd like to participate in the studies, the links are in the show notes. I wanted to take a minute here to let you know that Dr. Catherine LaBelle will be joining me to talk about her study of brain development in children and youth with prenatal alcohol exposure, taking place in her developmental neuroimaging lab at the University of Calgary on an upcoming episode of the FASD Family Life Podcast. If you're interested in having your young person participate in that Canadian study, there's also a link in the show notes. Do you want more? I've got more. Register for my live online FASD parent training courses. FASD brain domain and parenting to the brain. These courses will dive deep into FASD and give you practical skills to transform your family life from the very first class. I created these courses for you with my friend and colleague, Mary Ellen McPhail. She is the executive director of O'Shea's Brain Domain in Scotland and the parent of three with FASD. Next class begins in January. Email FASDFamilyLife at gmail.com for more info. Join our community of support, the FASD Family Life community. Together, we will deepen our understanding of FASD and build a community of support with parents and caregivers who understand. FASD Family Life Community Support Group meets one Tuesday a month at 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, and I hope to see you there. You can subscribe today for only $20 a month, and there is a link in the show notes for you to register. Do you have a question, a comment? Write to me at FASDFamilyLife at gmail.com. And as always, thank you for spending your time with me. I know it's precious. And until next week, remember, the struggle is real and so is success. I'll speak with you soon.